from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungmin from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Lena Mohammed. It's Friday, March 26th. Today, the economic cost of racism for Asian businesses and Tunisia a decade after the Arab Spring. I write about race and business, and through the last year, you know, businesses everywhere have been struggling because of the coronavirus pandemic. That's Tracy Jan. She's been reporting on how Asian American businesses are defending themselves against racist attacks in the wake of Atlanta. She spoke to Post Reports editor Alexis Diao. I've written about how businesses in Chinatown are especially vulnerable because of the stigma associated with the coronavirus all the way back in last spring. And there were already increasing anti-Asian bias, partly because of the president's rhetoric at the time. But now, after the Atlanta spa shootings, it's just a whole nother level of vitriol. And Tracy, in what ways are we seeing businesses, Asian-owned businesses, being targeted right now? It's everything from death threats, racist vandalism all over their windows, And one of the most extreme cases I've heard of is this woman named Kelly Shum. She owns a butcher shop. So we are a family-owned shop based in Sacramento, California. My parents are Chinese. They immigrated here in the 80s, bought the shop, and I moved back here a couple years ago just to kind of take over the reins. Myself and my parents are both Chinese, and our staff is primarily um, Asian. The last year has been really, really difficult. I think on top of all the other things that you have to do as a business to pivot with COVID, there's also this added layer of racism that we have to deal with. One day, a customer left the carcass of a mutilated cat in her parking lot. Oh, God. Um, And this plays into all sorts of racist stereotypes about Asians. We had a client here who came in, you see him go to the parking lot, drop off everything um, in his car that he had bought. And then out of the trunk of his car, there is a dead, bloody, mangled cat in an open box. Um, And he takes it from his trunk and dumps it out in the most public um, open part of our parking lot. So everyone could see it. It's how we found out about it. A customer notified us that there was a situation in the parking lot that we probably wanted to go take care of. It, sorry, it's like, it's really hard when I think about that day because you see that someone dislikes you so much that they were willing to go to this length. The same butcher shop has had other incidents People who don't want to wear masks have been blaming it on Asian American store owners. My sister was actually out, like she was attacked at the door by this guy because she was trying to enforce the face mask rule and he physically tries to assault her, calls her the China virus. I, you know, 27 year old girl at the time, I have to step in and then I have to be the one that's, you know, trying to escort this man off our premises. I'm trying to get him off our property. 
and he is just so angry and so upset. It's not just this one man. There were several other instances. It's a routine thing. She's like, every single day, um, their employees who are mostly Chinese and Vietnamese immigrant women get this type of abuse. What are some of the effects that she's seeing, her business is seeing, because she's being targeted? So Kelly is a television producer from L.A. I mean, she she had all these grand plans for how to market it. They're in a very low-income community. And then COVID hit. Um, when the racist uh, targeting started, you know, they she she's tr- she's trying to take off these Chinese brush paintings that were all over the shop. She removed a little lucky cat with a paw that waves to customers when they come in. It's like a cat that brings good luck. Basically, she tried to remove any cultural decor and signs of Asianness, and eventually, she had to hire a private security guard just so her employees feel safe. Three employees quit on her. It sucks because I know no other butcher shops in town that have a security guard. There's nobody else that has one, but it's just us because of our staff and the way that we've been discriminated against and the way that we've been targeted. We do have to kind of up the security here. There's a, there's a business impact in that it's costing these businesses a lot more money to secure themselves. But there's also a psychological impact. Um, I talked to one business owner, Mike Nguyen, in San Antonio, whose ramen shop was targeted with all these racist graffiti all over the windows. And he's immunocompromised. He has cancer. He's undergoing treatment. He takes the mask and social distancing policy very seriously in his business. And after the governor rescinded um, the statewide mask mandate, he spoke out against it. What he's done is he's put the burden on the business now. So that and what that's going to create is conflict at some point. And, you know, with me being an Asian-American, we're seeing all these, you know, attacks on Asian-Americans throughout the whole nation. That kind of concerns me. And for that, he got all these racist attacks. Mm. He's received death threats. He's received calls to his business with um, someone reciting his home address and telling him that they're coming for him. And he just doesn't feel that um, law enforcement is taking these threats seriously. He's afraid that he's going to have to get seriously hurt or even die for people to get the message. And how have the shootings in Atlanta that killed six Asian women, how has that affected these businesses? I mean, people are freaked out. After the Atlanta shootings, National ACE, which is an Asian American Chamber of Commerce representing business leaders from around the country, held an emergency meeting. Here we go. We're going to get started in a few minutes. If everybody can put themselves on mute, that'd be great before we start. Because they were getting all sorts of calls and emails of people seeking guidance of what what do we do. And so I actually sat in on this meeting last week, a couple days after the shootings, and just listened. This Chinatown has been the first to take a dive, and we still have not recovered yet. These Asian business owners aren't able to just focus on helping their businesses recover from the coronavirus, which small businesses everywhere are struggling with, not just Asians. But they're also having to deal with the effects of racism. We are not just dealing with one virus. We are now not just dealing with the second virus or the Kung flu. We are now having the effect of people afraid to come to Chinatown, just be afraid of the crossfire. You know, revenues have been down, businesses have been closed, 
clients of ours that have been around for 30, 40, 50 years and, and basically landmarks of the community, uh, we've seen shut down because they just haven't been able to afford it. We are not reopening our offices to the outside world until we can get a grasp of the personal safety issues for our people. There are folks who do not want to leave their homes, who do not want to open their businesses, who do not want to engage in the commerce that we so badly need to reemerge from the pandemic. And so what businesses are doing now, what these um, chambers of commerce are doing now is trying to equip these small mom and pop shops, helping them feel safer. Everything from installing security cameras, which many of these shops didn't have, you know, and a lot of times security cameras only have video, but not audio. And so they're saying, you know, get the kind that has audio because sometimes you see a robbery or you see someone being attacked, but without hearing what they're saying, the racist rhetoric that's going along with that attack, it's hard to classify that as a hate crime. And what do these businesses want to see happen? So these businesses, they want to feel protected. They want their complaints and reports of hate crimes to be taken seriously and investigated as hate crimes. Mm. But it's not just as simple as just flooding these neighborhoods or these businesses with more police. You know, that is actually a pretty contentious issue, even within the Asian American community, because police presence does not always mean more police protection for uh, vulnerable people, including Asian Americans. And there's also concern that it could lead to increased racial profiling. So what have business owners been doing to deal with this, to deal with being the targets of racist attacks? I mean, they've taken it upon themselves to protect themselves. I've spoken to businesses who, business owners who reluctantly went out and got conceal and carry permits and they're bringing guns into their businesses but some of them feel like they have no choice. One woman I spoke with who's Filipina-American, she owns an empanada shop in the Chicago area. After the Atlanta spa shootings, she actually came up with a active shooter emergency plan. Her two grown daughters work in her business. And she feels like, you know, in some cases, Asian women are just sitting ducks. Just this week, a Vietnamese American um, beauty school in Orange County hosted a self-defense workshop, the first time they've done this, for salon and spa workers who are mostly Asian women. They're also planning other trainings, de-escalation, unsafe confrontation, even how to use mace. These are the lengths that businesses are going to to protect their employees and their customers. I think that there's a sense that because these businesses are being targeted, that it's a problem that's isolated to that community, that it's not everyone's problem, but an Asian problem. What's your response to that? Well, Asian American owned businesses make up a huge part of the American economy. So whatever is an Asian problem is an American problem. Asian Americans own more than 10% of all U.S. businesses and they employ like more than 5 million people. So whether it's a Chinese restaurant or a Vietnamese-owned nail salon or a Korean dry cleaner or whatever your mom and pop corner store is, these are not isolated incidents to them. Even if the crime or the vitriol is not directed directly at those particular businesses, they're all feeling the effects of it because the fear is pervasive across the country. 
And if you are frequenting these, if you're a customer, if these businesses are in your community, whether or not you happen to be Asian or Asian American, it impacts you as well. What's your takeaway from this story, Tracy? Oh, damn. I don't know how to say <laughs> um, So there's a lot of anger in the community. And when you have Asian American shop owners who may have been raised in the culture where they, they, they were encouraged to just, you know, stay silent. Maybe their parents were like that. People of my generation were pissed off. No, there's no, why, why stay silent? There's, there's no, no good will come of not talking about this. You know, even last year when I started reporting on um, just the impact of COVID on Asian businesses, it was harder to get some longtime businesses to talk back then because they didn't want to make themselves further targets. Little did they know that a year later, whether or not they spoke out, they were targets. I know that the narrative is that uh, AAPI people, you know, we're taught from our culture, keep, you know, the reason why we don't report is because we're taught to just mind our own business to keep our head down. Yes, it is that. But I think what you're starting to see is over time, AAPI have been pushed aside by the police. And, you know, if the police don't take our concerns seriously, if law enforcement doesn't take our concerns seriously, why would we? So Kelly Shum, the owner of the butcher shop in Sacramento, she was super frustrated last spring when her sister was almost attacked. Kelly called the police, but police did not show up. They didn't show up the next day. They didn't show up the day after that. They never showed up. And she also felt like, why does it take a dead cat or a shooting for them to pay attention? Why does that have to happen? Why does it have to escalate to that level? This man, who actually was a regular customer, actually called her later to apologize. And he blamed it on the fact that he was having a bad day. Um, when I when we sp- I spoke with investigators, they interviewed him this morning, and I, I they got that impression that yes, he which he sounds familiar, him. right? Isn't that what the cops right. said about the shooter in Atlanta? Pretty much fed up, and then kind of at the end of his rope, and uh, and yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. A bad day, yes, a bad day. Tracy Jan reports on race and the economy for the Post. Alexis Diao produced this story. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. When we talk about, quote, unquote, the Arab Spring, we tend to refer to Tunisia as the one success to come out of it. You've been reporting from Tunis for quite some time now. Do do the people think it was a success? You get really mixed answers when, when I've asked that question. And I think many people these days say no. Just looking at sort of their day-to-day living situation, the lack of jobs, the high prices, 
just the kind of inability to satisfy basic needs and to see opportunity in the future. Those are sort of the main buckets of complaints and, and where people say the revolution and Tunisian democracy really fell short. Claire Parker is a freelance journalist based in Tunis, Tunisia. But people at the same time are are proud of the, the freedoms that they've acquired specifically. Civil society is flourishing. There's freedom of expression, although it faces some threats. But, you know, a lot of civil liberties, especially compared to other countries in the region, and a lot of protest movement and right to protest. So there's a sense that at least they have this freedom. And that's kind of the, the main gain of the revolution. <laughs> It's been a little over 10 years since the revolution started in Tunisia. A Tunisian street vendor named Mohamed Bouazizi captured the attention of the world when he burned himself to death in front of a government building to protest totalitarianism and rampant corruption. On the morning of December 17th, a female inspector accosted Bouazizi, seized his scales, and according to some locals, slapped him. 26-year-old Bouazizi struggled to get the attention of town officials until finally he doused himself with fuel and lit a lethal flame in the center of Sidi Bouzi. What started as the anger and frustration of a young street vendor in the small Tunisian town of Sidi Bouzid turned into massive protests that completely swept the country and then the entire region. What was seen then as the success of the Tunisian revolution quickly inspired many young people to revolt in Egypt, in Bahrain, in Libya, in Jordan, and in Syria. But 10 years on in Tunisia, much has changed and yet a lot has remained the same. And so many of the young people who were out on the streets protesting corruption and inequality back in 2011 are still protesting today. That's Walid Qusrawi. He is one of them. So Walid is 31. He's from a neighborhood called El Krem, Krem West, which is this working class poor neighborhood perched kind of just below some of Tunisia's fanciest seaside neighborhoods. It was just a a 10 minute drive from the presidential palace. And so he grew up in this setting in which You know, his father was a street cleaner. He worked odd jobs to support himself through high school. And he and his father were literally cleaning up after the ruling family at the time, um, the family of Zina Labadin Ben Ali, who was the dictator. And so the, the inequality that he saw during his childhood was just really stark. And he had this sort of up-close glimpse to the corruption of the Ben Ali regime. So on December 17th, 2010, 
Bouazizi sets himself on fire in protest. Where was Walid then? And, and how did he take that news in? So Walid was in his neighborhood in Krem, but he actually didn't hear about the the self-immolation and then the protests that arose from it for several weeks because there was such intense internet censorship, basically. Mm-hmm. And so sites were blocked. They would just get these 404 error messages when they tried to access information. And so he didn't hear about the uprising until it was actually, you know, several weeks into these mass protests. But the protests eventually did reach his neighborhood. They reached Tunis. And he sort of began to to see and hear the rumblings of, of discontent in the streets and people kind of becoming bolder. And it just felt like this very sort of tense atmosphere. This was in mid-January. Hmm. And how how did he decide to get involved? He and his friends went out on the night of January 13th to see what the protests were about and also to challenge this curfew that the government had imposed to keep people from protesting. And pretty immediately, the security forces started firing live ammunition at the protesters. And so one of his friends, Jokri, was the first to be killed in his neighborhood in the street. And Walid just remembers it was night, it was getting darker. All of a sudden, the, the lights in the neighborhood went out and he started running into the neighborhood. And he kind of stopped in a, in a patch of light, that's how he describes it, to catch his breath And just saw this figure coming toward him, dressed in black, and heard a crack. Mm. And he looked down and he saw his bone just, you know, split, blood everywhere. And he fell to the ground. And it was a sort of really dramatic and quick turn of events. Wow. And what were the immediate outcomes of sort of these bloody protests? So pretty soon after the protest to which Walid was shot, on January 13th. He must have realized that things were were taking a turn and he fled to Saudi Arabia with his family. That marked the the decisive turning point. Basically, the revolutionaries at that point had won. And there, there was sort of this transition period with interim governments. There were ongoing protests because people wanted a complete, you know, transfer of power away from people connected to the old deposed president. But eventually that, you know, it was decided that there would be elections in October 2011. And that is what kind of brought to Tunisia the, the new and elected government that would then write the constitution. Let's take a step back for a little bit. 
What were the political forces that were shaping the Tunisian society before the revolution? So before the revolution, Ben Ali, the president since 1987, and his RCD party were basically controlling every part of the political scene. They kind of had tentacles in every neighborhood. They had party offices and this sort of system of neighbors informing on neighbors. Very little dissent was tolerated. And there had been opposition movements. So there was a strong leftist opposition movement under his predecessor, which was repressed. And then the the Islamist group, Nahda, which was the main opposition movement under Ben Ali, and he heavily repressed that movement. And so very little dissent was tolerated under Ben Ali. His family also exerted a lot of control over the economy. So they and kind of their web of, of allies secured control of key sectors and used those to, to enrich themselves. So there was rampant corruption as well. Where does Tunisia stand now, you know, 10 years after that initial spark? So now it's in a bit of a tough place. There are a couple of sort of crises happening at once. There's an economic crisis which has never sort of been solved since the revolution and economic factors were one of the main trigger factors of the the revolution. So unemployment is still really high. It's now around 17%. Tunisia has a huge budget deficit. Its economy has contracted because of COVID also by 8.2% last year. And youth unemployment is is closer to 30%. So the economy is really struggling and COVID has made things worse. Politically, well, there's been just a lot of turnover in governments. So that's kind of caused this sort of public confidence crisis in the system in place and launched a a protest movement actually in January that swept the country that brought some of the biggest and most widespread protests since the revolution. And those protests were against basically the economic situation, the political actors, parliament and Anatha were were big targets of the protests. So for people like Walid, who 10 years after the uprising that he was a part of is still unemployed, he sees very much that the revolution continues in the sense that its demands have remained in many ways unmet. Tunisians have a lot of freedom now, so that was one of the key slogans of the revolution. And it was just clear that there's a lot of a lot of popular anger these days at just kind of how tough life is has gotten and this sort of perception that, okay, even though we elect our leaders, they aren't able to solve these really deep problems. When we look at sort of their successes, why in your view, was the Tunisian revolution more successful than in other countries in the region? I mean, there is no doubt that when you compare the democratic experiment in Tunisia to places like Yemen, Egypt, Libya, Syria, that it was, yes, one could say it was kind of a success. Why do you think democracy flourished there and died in all of these other places? 
Yeah, it's a really good question and basically what we sort of set out to explore. And there are a lot of reasons. I mean, among them are the fact that Tunisia is a lot more homogenous of a society and much smaller than um, a country like Syria, for example, which is kind of divided by sect. But there's also this notion that we kept sort of hearing as we talked to people and seeing as we explored that very question, which is just this idea of consensus. What exactly do you mean by that? So basically, some of the most powerful political actors on this scene in Nahda, but also people who were tied to the former dictators and some powerful civil society groups like the powerful labor union were able to come together and engage in dialogue and, and reach a deal essentially to forge an alliance um, between Anatha and the party of the late president, Beji Kajasebsi, who was affiliated with the former dictators. And basically govern through compromise and through this alliance of kind of strange bedfellows. Hmm. So so it sounds like there were still like uh, vestiges from the old regime. Exactly. How is that a good thing? So it's been mixed. I think that the successful inclusion of some members of the old order is what a lot of people say is sort of prevented Tunisia from falling into civil war or experiencing a coup like Egypt did, for example. But at the same time, uh, this this sort of prioritization of, of compromise and consensus at all costs has kind of gotten in, in the way of pursuing these more far-reaching revolutionary changes that many Tunisians sought in 2011. So for example, the economy is still largely controlled by the same powerful families that controlled it before the revolution. Many dictatorship era laws remain on the books and there's been kind of little effort to change them. The security sector is largely unreformed. So there are these remnants of the the old era that have gotten in the way and prevented Tunisia from moving forward and making sort of the radical reforms that that many people think it needs to make in order to become both really truly democratic through and through and also to improve the economy and make it more equitable. Let's go back to Walid Qasrawi. What happened to him since? So Walid, he basically spent a couple of years after the revolution pretty depressed, recovering, undergoing many surgeries, and eventually getting his leg amputated. But he, his life improved when he got, he was able to get married in 2013 and had a daughter and later a son. But he was unemployed during that time um, and it was really tough for the family. Walid's story in many ways represents both the triumphs and the challenges of democracy in Tunisia. He's also spent the past decade fighting for the publication of an official list of those wounded and killed during the revolution, which was promised to them after the revolution, and yet successive governments stalled. 
at the same time, Walid and the other Arab Spring revolutionaries are still waiting for justice for the abuses of the revolution and the crimes of the dictatorship. And so for Walid, for example, he's actually asked doctors to leave 60% of the bullet fragments from that night lodged in his thigh so that one day, he hopes, when a trial progresses to the point when they might need ballistic evidence, they can actually extract that evidence from his body. But trials have stalled for various reasons. He's not very optimistic that one day he'll he'll kind of get the closure that he so wants. But till then, he's, he's keeping these bullet fragments in his leg. Claire Parker is a freelance journalist based in Tunis. This story was edited by Rina Flores and produced by me. Last Friday, the Tunisian government released the list of those killed and injured during the 2011 revolution, the list that Walid Qasraoui had been trying to get for a decade now. While the publishing of this list recognizes at last the sacrifices that thousands have made for a democracy, it is only the first step for reparations and compensation. That process is only now getting underway. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Senior producer Rina Flores and associate producer Renny Svarnowski mixed today's show. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Jordan Marie Smith is a producer. Ariel Plotnik is an associate producer. I'm Lina Mohammed. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.